Now as we turn, we're finishing out the last message of the book of Haggai. It's a total of four verses. And it's covering a topic that the Lord, I believe, really wants us to understand this morning. And that is the hope of faith. And it's, it's a big topic. And so once again, I'm going to ask, let's go before the Lord. Let's ask him to bless our time in his word. Father God, we come before you. And as we open up your word, Father, I pray that you would open our hearts and our eyes. Give us the understanding that we need, Father God. Help us to see the hope of our faith, Father God. Help us to understand it. And may it be the strength in our life that we need to continue to endure and to live and to please you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, Haggai, for such a small book, I don't know for you guys, but I know for myself, it's been really challenging, especially in that call for us to think carefully about our ways. We remember the first message that we had from it where we were challenged to examine our priorities. The second one, we were instructed how we should properly shape our expectations according to the presence and promise of God. And last week, we were reminded about the principles and the effects of spiritual contamination. And this morning, we come to the last message of Haggai, and we're going to finish the book. And our focus this morning is to think carefully about our hope of faith. You see, our faith is based on the hope that we have. And there's a story of a man who was sentenced to death, who attained a reprieve by assuring the king that he would teach his majesty's horse to fly within the year. On the condition that if he didn't succeed, that he would be put to death at the end of the year. And while everybody's like looking at this guy like he's crazy, this is what he says. He says, within a year, the man explains, the king may die, or I may die, or the, ho- or the horse may die. He says, furthermore, in a year, who knows, maybe the horse will learn to fly. You see, our hope is not such as that, where we don't know what's going to happen, where we don't know that. You see, our hope is not what we have or what we don't have. Our hope is not in our bank account. Our hope is not in our job. Our hope is not in our title. Our hope is not even in our family. And our hope is not in a relationship. It's not in our husband. It's not in our wife. It's not in our mom. It's not in our dad. But our hope is not in in, in what. Our hope is in a whom. And here's the thing. If your hope is not in God, then your hope for tomorrow at best is a hope so. But for those whose hope of faith is God and they are right with God, our future has a hope and that hope is certain. And God desires for us to have faith in him as the hope of our faith. And so Haggai was given this final message because the people in that time, if their hope was in themselves or their hope was in their circumstances, then as they set out to do the work of God, they will fail. And that gives us a truth that we need to live by, that we need to understand. It's that our future hope will affect our present living. What we hope for in the future directs how we live in the present. And the people... Let's be reminded of the context. They've been struggling with discouragement, okay? Here's the context. 70 years, the people of Israel were slaves to the kingdom of Babylon. The Medo-Persian Empire, when they conquered Babylon, had allowed them to return to their homeland so that they could rebuild their country, which lay in ruins. And they had begun rebuilding God's temple, but when met with opposition, they slowly quit the work when they looked around and they saw that the temple of God was in ruins, but their house was in ruins and their farmland was in ruins, they put down their tools and they began going, it's not the time for God's work. It's time for us to rebuild our life and our homes. And so their lack of balance and misplaced priorities, they forsook God's work altogether and brought God's punishment on them for it. 
He withheld rain from them. He gave them no satisfaction from their labors. He kept his blessing from them. All this to get their attention. 14 years went by where God was trying to get their attention. And he sent his prophet Haggai to do it. After which time the people returned to the temple. They began building. But once again, God was withholding his blessing from them because although they had gone to work, they had not yet been cleansed. They were still an unclean people and therefore all the work and all their offering to God was unacceptable. And it must have seemed very bleak to one who was called to lead the people out of Babylon and to begin the rebuilding. That one person, his name was Zerubbabel. If you're looking for names for your kids, that's, that's one that you can go with. You can go with Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, as a leader over the people, he may have said, look, the people are down. God is seemingly working against us and our crops aren't producing and our situation is desperate and our borders are wide open. And as any leader who's in a place of leadership in which everything is just falling apart around them, they're like, you know what? I'd like to just give up right now. I'd, I, I'm done. And maybe you're here this morning and you might understand how that feels. Maybe you feel that way today. Maybe you're in a position where you're, you're like, I want to give up. And if not right now, we can all admit that we've been in those shoes at some time where we've wanted to give up, where we've wanted to run away. I mean, it's such a prevalent thought that they have created a commercial for it. Anybody remember Southwest Airlines? Need to get away? Well, this morning, I believe that God wants to tell us that as children of God, we have a special gift to deal with these times of severe discouragement where we feel like quitting or giving up. And so as we close this book of Haggai, we're, we're going to see the final message that God gave to Haggai. Uh, and it's a final message of hope. And this message of hope still inspires hope among believers today because we are looking at it today. But know this, our hope lies far beyond this message. You see, it's what we learn about the messenger himself that gives us great cause for hope and faith, even in the most disparaging of times. As we're reminded today, something that happened 21 years ago in which it, it seemed like a hopeless situation. It, it, it was a dark time for many people, but the hope of God is that light. It was that time that needed. It is in our hope of faith that we find the inspiration of endurance and perseverance to continue on. And so let's begin in Haggai chapter two, verse 20. It says, the word of the Lord came to Haggai a second time on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah. I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn royal thrones and destroy the power of the Gentile kingdoms. I will overturn chariots and their riders, horses and their riders will fall each by his brother's sword. On that day, this is the Lord's declaration. I'm sorry, this is the declaration of the Lord of armies. I will take you Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, my servant. This is the Lord's declaration and make you like my signet ring for I have chosen you. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. And so as we consider our hope of faith, there's three things to that hope that we need to know. Number one, that hope is a personal hope. It's a personal hope. Your hope can't be in your mom or in your dad. Your hope can't be in a religious leader. Your hope can't be in a government figure. They can't have that hope for you. Your mom can't give you hope. Your dad can't give you that hope. I can't give that hope to you. That hope is a personal hope hope. It says that the word of the Lord came to Haggai a second time on the 24th day of the month. And it says, speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah. And so as with all the other messages that Haggai had, this one also came from the Lord. This wasn't his own personal. This was a message from the Lord. And God had an important word and it was necessary for this time, but it's a peculiar time for this message. I don't know if you picked up on that, but the word of the Lord came a second time 
on the 24th day of the month. If you remember from last week, the third message of Haggai happened on the 24th day of the month. And so this message is the same day as the previous message. That means he had two messages on the same day. That's how you do math. But this wasn't God going, oh, by the way, here's something I forgot. This was God giving a second message, a very specific message that was needed at that specific time. And that specific message was given specifically to Zerubbabel. Haggai was directed to speak the message to Zerubbabel. And though that message was specifically for Zerubbabel, it isn't just for Zerubbabel. This message being recorded in scripture means it's useful and necessary for all who would read it as the word of God. For 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is inspired by God and it's profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness. So that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The message was given to Zerubbabel from God through Haggai. And notice that it was pointed towards his position, his office, the title of governor. You see, Zerubbabel was not a prophet like Haggai. He wasn't a priest like Joshua, who was the high priest of that day. But he was a leader. You see, he was a politician. And he was discouraged in what it was that he was doing. He's a governor, but maybe you didn't know this about Zerubbabel. Did you know that he's a descendant of a king? His grandfather was Jehoiakim comes from a kingly line, but he himself, not a king, a reminder of the exile of Israel. A reminder that Israel remained under the control and the authority of Persians. But nonetheless, Zerubbabel was a leader over the people. And here's the thing as leaders over people. If his faith was weak and lacking hope, then that would lead to a lack of hope and faith among the people whom he led. We live in a time in which most are unwilling to assume responsibility in many different ways. In fact, we make fun of the latest generation for it. We say that they are the generation that desires the least amount of responsibility as they grow up because if more and more of them are not buying cars, more and more of them are not buying houses, more and more of them are not finding necessarily full-time jobs. They will work part-time and this and that. And, and a lot of it has to do with they don't want the responsibility because when you buy a car, maintenance. When you buy a house, maintenance and all sorts of things. And so we have many that are unwilling to assume responsibility. Most, however, are happy and eager to receive credit. They just don't want to assume the responsibility, especially if there's a potential for failure. It's easy to bark out orders and give directions and set expectations, but we draw the line at having to be held accountable for those. Now, whether we want to admit it or not, organizations rise and fall with leadership. And I'm going to talk about the church for a little bit. And yes, I know the church itself is not necessarily an organization. We know that the church is a living body. She is the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, but the principle remains the same. If the leadership within the church is lacking in faith and hope, then the church as a whole will be lacking as well. And so the commission and the call and the reminder of that is that those of us in leadership roles will have to give an account for, to God for how we've led and what we've done with what we were given and whom we were entrusted with. On a personal level, I cannot expect faith and commitment from the chairs out there if it does not come from the pulpit and from my life as a leader. And our leaders here at the church can't expect that if it doesn't come from the life of our leaders and of our pastors here at the church. And I would call upon anybody who would teach others, whether that's in a public school setting, a Christian school setting, a homeschool setting, a Sunday school setting, don't expect it of those who listen to you if it's lacking in you. 
History, however, is replete with men and women who've been greatly used by God in the public and political life. We, we tend to kind of write off politics, politicians, civil leaders as being leaders that God can use or that God would use. We just, we, we kind of like to see them as a necessary evil. But in the Bible, we have the account of Joseph who was active and used in the political life of Egypt. You see, he held the second highest position next to Pharaoh. He was responsible for the exact agricultural policy that saved the land from a severe famine. Then we have Daniel. You see, in the Babylonian captivity, there were some who rose to the top, who were raised in uh, Nebuchadnezzar's court to be wise men. And Daniel held a high office. He was one of the top wise men in the political life of Babylon. He served under several kings, Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, Darius, and Cyrus. Nehemiah, who will come after Zerubbabel, like Zerubbabel, also is governor over Judah. And he'll be responsible for rebuilding the walls of the city. And so we need to understand that being active in political life is not incompatible with having a strong faith in God. They are not at odds with each other, but they can be used together. Truthfully, we could use more people to take their faith and serve an active political civil life. Truthfully, we could use more people that would stand up in their faith and and live and walk and be as leaders for our Lord Jesus Christ. Scriptures teach that we should pray godly men and women who carry the burden of leadership we, we need to pray for them, not only in religious setting, but in political and public life as well. First Timothy chapter two, Paul writes, first of all, then I urge that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for everyone, for kings and all those who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Now, as we pray for those people to be in those positions, we have to remember the hope of our faith is not a hope in a specific government. It's not a specific idealistic government. It's not in a specific government leader. It's not in a specific vote that's going to happen. Our hope of faith is in the one who appoints governments and leaders and kingdoms and nations. This is what the scriptures teach, that there's one who's in control of all that. And we get caught up in the, in the weeds. And this is what the Pharisees were trying to do with Jesus. In Mark 12, they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to Jesus to trap him in his words. When they came to him, they said to him, teacher, we know you're truthful and don't care what anyone thinks. Nor do you show partiality, but teach the way of God truthfully. If they believed all that, they wouldn't be trying to butter him up. But here's the crux of it. They said, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Tell us, should we pay or shouldn't we? I'm going to level with you. They didn't care one iota about paying taxes or not. That wasn't the point of it. I know this because the next line says, but knowing their hypocrisy, he, Jesus said to them, why are you testing me? He says, bring me a denarius to look at. So they bring him a coin. And as he flips it over, there's an image on the coin. And he says, whose image and inscription is this? Caesar's, they asked. And so Jesus gave them that famous line. We We may not know the context of it, but we've all heard this line. Then render unto or give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were amazed at him. And and here's what he's saying. He's not saying will you pay taxes or you don't pay taxes? He's saying it's kind of both in the same. You honor God by paying those taxes because the government has rightful demands of citizens as it's ordained by God. Now, I don't have all the time to go into all the caveats of this, but let it be known that God institutes governments. We may not like our government that we have, but it's been said that God doesn't give the people the government they want. He gives them the government they deserve. Now, Paul in Romans 13, and as I think about this verse, I remember that Paul wrote this under the emperorship of Nero. 
a hater of the Christian church, a persecutor of the Christians, one who would martyr Christians and, and torture them. And Paul still writes in Romans 13:1, let everyone submit to the governing authorities since there is no authority except from God and the authorities that exist are instituted by God. Now, does this mean that we have to submit to the government when it says you need to turn away from God and ignore God? No, at that point, it goes different. But like I said, I don't have time to get into all that. I'm, I'm, I'm just going off. Government is a necessary thing. Government is something that's instituted by God. And our trust isn't in the government. Our trust is in the God who sets up the governments. You see, our personal hope of faith is not in our position. It's not in our government officials. It's not in our government at all. Our personal hope of faith is God. And the second part of that is that our hope of faith in God is a powerful hope. We need to be reminded of that because sometimes we, we may feel powerless in what we're doing and where we're at. But look at verse 21. Verse 21 says, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn royal thrones and destroy the power of the Gentile kingdoms. And I will overturn chariots and their riders. Horses and their riders will fall each by his brother's sword. You see, the message that God spoke to Zerubbabel was spoken to reveal and remind Zerubbabel in his time of discouragement, in his time of just feeling utterly powerless, that his hope and his faith is in God. And God was reminding him, of his great strength and his unmatched power. I mean, listen to the sheer power of God in these verses. He makes three promises that showcase that power and sovereignty. He says, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. Speaking of the judgment that will take place in the heavens and the earth, reminiscent of previous verses six and seven, where it says, for the Lord of armies says this, once more in a little while, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all the nations will come and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of armies. Then the Lord turns and says, I will overturn royal thrones and destroy the power of the Gentile kingdoms. You see, this speaks to the prophecy of the times of the Gentiles. You see that time period that when Israel went into captivity to the Babylonian empire, it started a time period known as the times of the Gentiles. During the period of the times of the Gentiles, Israel would have no king and have no kingdom. It, that, that time begins when they were brought into captivity and that time will continue until the Lord Jesus Christ comes and sets up his kingdom. We read about the times of the Gentiles and what's going to happen with it in Daniel chapter 2. Remember Daniel being a high official of the government in, in uh, Babylon he had a lot of prophecies and this is how he got to that high position. It says in the second year of his reign, King Nebuchadnezzar had dreams that troubled him and sleep deserted him. And so he gave orders to summon the magicians, the mediums, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. And when they came and stood before the king, he said to them, I've had a dream and I'm anxious to understand it. And so the Chaldeans spoke to the king and they said, may the king live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will give its interpretation. And the king replied to the Chaldeans, my word is final. If you don't tell me the dream and its interpretations, you will be torn limb from limb and your houses will be made a garbage dump. And I'm going to jump a few verses, but I'll give you the short version. They looked at the king and their jaws dropped and they said, that's not fair. No king has ever asked any wise men to give that interpreter. Who could do that? That's, that's totally uncalled for. And so the king upset by their answer says, I, that's it. Kill all the wise men. Just get rid of them. I have no need for them. And so as they're going around and they're collecting people up, you know, Daniel's there and he goes, Hey, why are you rounding up all the wise men? Oh, I'm going to kill them all. Why? Well, nobody will give the king the interpretation of his dream. Oh, well, Tell him, hang on a second. And so Daniel goes and he gets with his friends and they pray to the Lord God. And as they pray to the Lord God, God gives him the interpretation. And so he goes before the king. He says, wait, 
I will give you the interpretation. And the king goes, no, give me the dream first. And Daniel goes, all right, it's been revealed to me, not through me, but by God who's in heaven. And then we pick it up in verse 31. He says, your majesty, as you were watching, suddenly a colossal statue appeared. The statue, tall and dazzling, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was terrifying. The head of the statue was pure gold. Its chest and arms were silver. Its stomach and thighs were bronze. Its legs were iron, and its feet were partly iron and partly fired clay. As you were watching, a stone broke off without a hand touching it, struck the statue on its feet of iron and fired clay, and crushed them. Then the iron and the fired clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were shattered and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away, and not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. And this was the dream, and now we will tell the king its interpretation. And so what we have here is this is an exact picture from Nebuchadnezzar's dream. This was recovered in... No, I'm just kidding. This is a rendition from an artist of what was described in the Bible. Okay, this isn't scripture here. This is just an idea of what it could have looked like. And so then Daniel moves to the interpretation now. He says, your majesty, you are king of kings. And notice both those K's are lowercase because there's only one king of kings. The God of the heavens has given you sovereignty, power, strength, and glory. He says, wherever people live or wild animals or birds of the sky, he's handed them over to you and made you ruler over them all. You are the head of gold. He says, after you, there will arise another kingdom inferior to yours. And then a third kingdom of bronze, which will rule the whole earth. And a fourth kingdom will be as strong as iron for iron crushes and shatters everything. And like iron that smashes, it will crush and smash all the others. He says, you saw the feet and toes, partly of a potter's fired clay and partly of iron. It will be divided kingdom, though some of the strength of iron will be in it. You saw the iron mixed with clay. And that the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly fired clay. Part of the kingdom will be strong and part will be brittle. You saw the iron mixed with clay. The people will mix with one another, but will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. In the days of those kings, the God of the heavens will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, and this kingdom will not be left to another people. It will crush all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. And so that's the second part in which the stone hits the statue and crushes it, and the entire statue, which represents all the Gentile kingdoms mentioned in that, turning into dust and flying away like chaff, with no trace. The Lord God says, I will overturn their chariots and their riders, horses and their riders. They will fall by his brother's sword. This is spoken and it's indicative in the change of government in the world. And it's going to be both a change militarily and politically. You see, the battle of Armageddon is the final battle of the Gentile kingdoms. The battle of Armageddon is yet future. And we read about it in Romans 16, uh, Romans, Revelation 16. Revelation 16, verse 16, it says, so they assembled the kings at the place in Hebrew, Armageddon. Then the seventh poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. There are flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake occurred like no other since the people have been on earth. So great was the quake. They assemble in the Valley of Megiddo, which is the Valley of Armageddon, the Battle of Armageddon, the final battle. And then we also read in Revelation, and Revelation 19 is a good spot where we like to camp out when we read the book of Revelation, because Revelation 19 talks about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ when he comes again to set up the millennial kingdom. Revelation 19 reads like this in verse 11. It says, then I saw heaven opened and there was a white horse and its rider is called faithful and true. And with justice, he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a fiery flame and many crowns were on his head. And he had a name written that no one knows except himself. And he wore a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. And the armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses wearing pure white linen. 
commentators and, and Bible scholars and, and the armies that were in heaven that followed him, that is his church, that is his bride, that is those who have been saved. They follow him, they're dressed in pure white linen, the, win- the white linen cloths that he gave them. And then it says a sharp sword comes from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. And with it, he will rule them with an iron rod. And he will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God, the almighty. And he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, King of King and Lord of Lords. You see, God speaking to Zerubbabel and talking about this, he's not talking about a change in dynasty He's not talking about like a change, like when Saul disobeyed God and and God took the kingdom from him and gave it to David's family. It's not a change in dynasty like that. It's a destruction of the entire strength, power, and ruling of the Gentile kingdoms. No longer will there be any other kingdom other than the kingdom of God when that comes. It's easy to return from exile as a conquered nation and to feel insignificant, to feel like you're just a spectator now in the current world events. But God desired for them to know that their hope and faith is in a powerful hope, that God is all-powerful, and that they are on the side of victory. Now, for us, there can be no doubt that in recent years we've experienced and will continue to experience in future years a great decline among the church in America. There's been a severe watering down of the gospel by other churches and other things. Um, There's been an emergent church, which is now known as the progressive church, that in their teaching, they go all the way back to the garden. You know what they're teaching? They're teaching it wasn't Satan who lied in the garden, that it was God. God was the one who lied because they didn't surely die in that day. But Satan was the one that told them that if they eat the apple, their eyes will be open. And it was. And so they're reversing the whole thing. And, and, and these are churches by which they call themselves Christian. So as we, as we go through that, and, we, and, and then as we see a watering down of the gospel, and we see this, this thing in, in which we're no longer living for a future hope and glory in Christ, and instead we're told to live for everything that we can get here on earth, we see a watering down of it, and we see a weakening in the church. We see people leaving the church because those things don't answer the problems of life. We face struggles and opposition that weren't present just a few years ago. There were some great um, leaps forward and some great advantages taken with some of the recent shutdowns and different things. And perhaps like many others, you might be wondering, is the church going to survive? How bad are things going to get for us in the future? How is society and culture going to respond to the church and people who want to live by faith? I'm thoroughly convinced that we are headed for more difficulty. I am certain opposition is in our future. In fact, I believe that we're likely going to face persecution for our faith, even here in America. And I'm not talking about persecution like right now our feelings get hurt because people find out that we're believers and they make fun of us. I'm talking we may pay for it with our freedom. We may pay for it with our lives. They may try to take kids from us. There's a lot of things that can happen. But you know what? We can rest assured knowing that the church will prevail. You see, trials and adversity are going to come. But our powerful hope is the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know what? He didn't die for the church to allow her to perish in the world. Struggles will abound. But remember that the Lord remains seated on his throne and he remains in sovereign, complete control. Christ gave this promise to Peter. He says, I say to you that you are Peter. And on this rock, it's the rock of Peter's statement that thou art the Christ. He says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Also said in other translations that the gates of hell will not prevail. And it's based on this promise from the Lord about how the church would overcome and not be taken under that Paul in Romans 8.37 writes what he does. 
He says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Even in the worst of circumstances, we can't be separated from the love of God. Now, if the people in Haggai's time weren't going to live to see any of these promises fulfilled, why did God see the need to share this with them? That brings up another question. What benefit is there to learning prophecy? Here's the purpose of prophecy. It shows that God is sovereign and God is in control of the kingdoms of the earth. You see, they face great adversity and bondage by a foreign king, but the kings of Babylon don't surpass the authority and the power of God. We may face a corrupt government. We may face corrupt nations that want to take us out. But you know what? None of those nations usurp the power and authority of God. We simply, like they, need to trust the Lord and depend on him. Things are rapidly changing in our world, right? Presidents, Congress, Supreme Court, they continue to pass legislation that little by little will hinder, restrict, and change what our religious liberties look like. But we must not lose heart. You see, our powerful hope of faith is God remains seated on his throne. And Jesus Christ, our Lord, is seated at his right hand. And he intercedes on our behalf. And although the world may reject Jesus as the sovereign savior, he remains in complete control. We need to remember that just because the world rejects Jesus doesn't mean that all of a sudden, oh, I'm sorry, they rejected you. You have to get off the throne. They can reject him all they want. He remains seated on the throne. And that's important for us because not only is it a powerful hope, it's a preserving hope. Verse 23, it says, on that day, This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. He says, I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, my servant. This is the Lord's declaration. And make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. He says, on that day, I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel. And he calls him, he says, he doesn't say my governor. He says, my servant. Let that be a reminder to us doesn't matter what your title is. It doesn't matter where you serve. It doesn't matter how God uses you. It all boils down to we're all servants of the Lord God. He says, on that day, on the day of the Gentile judgment, he says, I will make you, I will make you my servant like my signet ring. A signet ring is used to confer authority or ownership Um, A signet ring was used to make impressions in melted wax over official documents, to seal them, to secure them, to close them, but also to signify by which authority they are being sent and presented. Now, the prophet Jeremiah used imagery of the signet ring as well when he gave a prophecy. This was before the fall of Judah. Jeremiah, speaking for God, or God speaking through Jeremiah, I should say, he says, as I live, this is the Lord's declaration. Though you, Kaniah, son of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, were a signet ring on my right hand, I would tear you from it. In fact, I will hand you over to those you dread who intend to take your life to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon and the Chaldeans. Now, This is important because you remember I told you that Zerubbabel's grandfather was Jehoiakim, who was a king in Israel. Well, a nickname for Jehoiakim was Kaniah. Jehoiakim, in that prophecy from God, had sinned against God in such a way that he said, I'm removing the kingdom from you and from your progeny forever. How is that possible? There's only one line of David. The Messiah has to come through the line of David. Zerubbabel, as governor, he's like, I'm in leadership, but like, this was stripped from my grandfather. I come from a cursed family line. 
Whereas Jehoiakim was a signet ring being stripped off, God is saying, Zerubbabel, you are a signet ring being put on. And I think the best interpretation of that is there is a reversal of that curse because of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel is in the lineage of Messiah. In fact, the promise of the Messiah is preserved, though Jehoiakim was cursed. Zerubbabel is the last person to stand in both lines of Mary and Joseph. To be the legal line of David, yet not of the seed of Jehoiakim. I don't know where you come from today. Maybe you feel like you come from a cursed place. Your hope in the Lord God is a preserving hope. It doesn't matter where you came from. It doesn't matter if you feel like you're in a, a curse or that there's a curse upon you. In the Lord's hands, you're preserved. You're useful for him. Why? God tells him, I have chosen you. It's a messianic description. It's a great promise for sure, but did this occur in his lifetime? No, he preached the message in 520 BC. The Jews finished the temple in 516 BC. The nations of the earth did not collapse then. Zerubbabel did not rule. In fact, Zerubbabel from that point on kind of fades into obscurity after the temple is built because then comes Nehemiah who takes over as governor for Zerubbabel. And then that temple that Zerubbabel built, guess what? Herod comes and redoes it, makes it even better. But in 70 AD, Titus comes and destroys it once again, rips it stone from stone, and it hasn't been rebuilt since. Was Haggai wrong? Did he misunderstand God? Absolutely not. Number one, Zerubbabel was not the Messiah. That's clear. <laughs> Number two, the prophecy pertained to Zerubbabel's position in the lineage, not his person. He was in the messianic line, and that's the point. He, was an exempl he exemplified the Messiah. He was a type of Messiah. Robert Alden, in his observation, says, Zerubbabel was no more the Messiah than Moses was, Joshua was, David was, Solomon was, or Isaiah was. But here we have Zerubbabel, in the lineage of Christ through both Mary and Joseph. That's the significance. When Israel rebelled against the Lord, he sent the Jews into captivity and that messianic line was interrupted. There was no son of David reigning in Israel. But with this promise to Zerubbabel, God was saying, my promise still holds. The hope of the coming Messiah is still intact. And you know what? 500 years later, the Messiah was born. And he was presented into the temple as the Messiah on the exact day that was prophesied. You see, Daniel's prophecy of the 70 weeks prophesies down to the exact day that the Messiah would present himself at the, at the temple. This is why Jesus outside of Jerusalem says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And he weeps over them. He says, I would so desire to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. He said, if only you had known the peace that this day would bring, but you did not know the day of your visitation, even though God prophesied it. You see, the Messiah that was born was Jesus who was the Christ. And he presented himself as the Messiah. He sacrificed himself on the cross. He died for all sins to provide forgiveness for those who would put their faith and trust in him. He was buried for three days and on the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven and He's going to come again as promised by God and promised by himself. And when he does, that is when he will finish the work prophesied here in Haggai. Perhaps the governor thought that his work was unimportant because the temple was just ordinary. The nation was small and weak. But he was part 
of the plan that would lead one day to the coming of the Messiah. And here's what God spoke to me through that. Like, and, and I want to share it with you because I want to give you guys as much hope and as much encouragement as the Lord gave me. He said, your part in God's kingdom today is not insignificant or unimportant, no matter how it appears to you, no matter if you come from a cursed family line. Be encouraged and keep working and understand that your life in God's hands can be used for great things. Because our hope of faith is not in ourselves. It's not in our own power. It's not in our own abilities. Our hope of faith is in God in heaven. Our hope of faith in God is that God is in control. God is in control of who you are. God is in control of where you are. He's in control of the things that are happening to you and around you. And he's also in control of what will happen next. He rules over all and he's sovereign in all. Our hope of faith in God is also that God keeps his word and promises. That is why we study prophecy, because it shows that he's faithful to keep his word so that we can trust him to keep his other word. It's given in order that we might see that he keeps his word and that he's strong enough to bring it to pass. You see, our hope of faith is the promise of Jesus' return to set up the perfect kingdom. And God has already kept his other promises. God promised to send a flood. He sent a flood. God promised to destroy the kingdoms, the Babylonians, the Medes, the Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans. All those kingdoms have been destroyed. The final kingdom is the mixed kingdom. He promised the destruction of the, of the temple. He prophesied that the temple would be destroyed. And in 70 AD, the temple was destroyed. You see, God keeps his promises and he promises to send Jesus again. And he promises that through Jesus that we can have salvation and forgiveness of sin. And he promises that through Jesus, we become placed in the family of God to live with him for eternity. And we also have this promise from Paul. He says, I'm sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on until completion, to completion until the day of Christ. Until the day Christ returns. And our hope of faith in God is this. God is for his people. He's not against us. How do I know that God is for his people? Because he gave prophets like Haggai to send to, peop to the people when they were disobedient to God. He didn't just kill them and wipe them out and say, that's it, I'm done with them. Just clear the board. I'll start over. When they put down their tools and they went home and they forgot about him, he didn't kill them. He did punish them and he disciplined them. But the Bible tells us that God punishes and disciplines those whom he loves. And if God didn't discipline them and if God didn't discipline us, it's because he didn't love them and he doesn't love us. But God did punish and God does discipline because he loves, because they were his people. And I know that God loved them. You know how I know that God loves us? Because it says this, God has demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us. So that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Sometimes I think that we, too often we look around us at the things going on in our circumstances to and, and, and we wonder, is, is, is God really on my side? And so what we end up doing is we force God to prove his love for us by demanding good circumstances or lots of stuff. And we make him prove his love because we want an easy, trouble-free life. But when we look and wonder like that, we are actually questioning the goodness of God. And here, here's the thing. God is good to us beyond measure. And I'm not denying. It's good to have an abundance of things and to have good times in our life and to not always be walking through the valleys. Sometimes we like to be on the mountaintops. It's a little bit easier up there. But God doesn't have to give you those things to prove his love for you. He may or he may not. But we remember that God already proved his love by sending Christ. 
If God had to give you those things to demonstrate that he's on your side, then Paul's writings reveal that God probably hated him. And the writings of John the Baptist, or the writings of the Gospels show that he must have hated John the Baptist or Peter or any of the other disciples, except for John the Apostle, whom Jesus loved. All the other disciples were martyred for their faith. They died horrific deaths. And that John wasn't spared because he was special. They tried to kill him. He just didn't die when they put him in boiling oil, which I don't know what's worse, living through that or dying in that. Every one of those men lived lives of great trial and hardship, but every one of them was sold out for the fact of God's love for them. Paul said, one of the greatest things that we can do with our time is to think on these things and to set our mind on things above. And the book of Haggai has demonstrated that the question that you need to ask this morning is not, is God on your side? The question you need to ask is, have you made up your mind to be on God's side? God has to be the hope of our faith. And I don't know what circumstances you're in today, but I want you to know that God is in control of them. You can work and work and work and try to take the reins from God and try to control your own life, but you know what's going to happen? Things like what happened on September 11th in 2001, the darkest day of America's history, showed we are not in control. Showed us that life is short. The only thing you can do is you can trust the one who sits on his throne and is in control. He knows where he's going with your life. And he's promised that it's going to be glorious. Will you trust him? And then for those of us that know Christ as our Lord and Savior, we understand that God's kingdom is our future hope of faith. We look forward to that time. He's coming back to set it up. Will you be ready for it? Father God, we come before you this morning, Lord. Father, as we close this book, we're forced to consider our hope of faith. Reveal to us what we've placed our hope in, Father God, that we might have true faith in you because our hope remains in you, Father God, that our hope is not in a government, that our hope is not in a leader, that our hope is not in our ability to do something, or our hope isn't in the family line that we come from or that we don't come from. Or, but Father, that our hope would remain totally in you. And for those that don't know that faith and that hope in you, Father God, I pray that your spirit would speak to their heart to draw them to the foot of the cross of Christ to see that the first promise in their relationship with you rings true, that you have sent Jesus to die on the cross for, for the forgiveness of the sins that separate us from you. And that all who call upon the name of Christ shall be saved, forgiven, placed into the family of God, and that their hope can be in you. Lord, help us to stop living for our own kingdom and hoping for our own kingdom but help us to live for our hope in your kingdom as we cry out, Maranatha. Even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. In Jesus' name, amen.